Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. David Ajay's controversial Holocaust memorial approved following inquiry. Garden Museum reveals Lambeth Green Pavilion finalists. Visitors to MVRDV's contentious Marble Arch Mound issued refunds. And the enormous glowing sphere which may soon be gracing East London's skyline. My name is Merlin Fulcher, I'm an architectural journalist, and I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the Lundown. My special guest this week is Gillian Darley. Gillian is an architectural historian and writer. Welcome to the show. Very pleased to be here. Our first story this week was featured in the AJ and the Guardian and covers the planning approval of David Ajay's controversial Holocaust Memorial. Housing Minister Christopher Pincher has given the go-ahead to Ajay and Ron Arad's competition-winning proposal for a memorial and visitor centre in the Grade 2 listed Victoria Tower Gardens. This highly contested decision, made in line with the planning inspector's advice, follows multiple redesigns, protests and a public inquiry held last October. The controversy surrounding this government-backed scheme is principally concerned with its location in the small park next to the Houses of Parliament. In 2017, then-Housing Minister Esther McVeigh called in the plans in a last-minute turnaround just hours before Parliament dissolved and three months before Westminster City Council unanimously rejected the scheme. Following the submission of the latest revised designs in 2019, Pincher conceded that the scheme was not in line with the local development plan. He said harm would be caused to the setting of heritage assets including Westminster Abbey and Parliament Square Conservation Area, and also the Buxton Memorial Fountain, um, and that for all these reasons this weighed considerably against the proposals. Yet despite this, in finally approving the scheme, the minister said these points were outweighed by, quote, a series of very significant public benefits. The Board of Deputy British Jews has welcomed this £100 million scheme, and Ajay, who designed the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., and won last year's Royal Gold Medal, described Pinch's decision as, quote, a huge milestone in bringing this project to reality. However, there has also been significant pushback from objectors, including Westminster City Council, local community groups and some Jewish leaders and Holocaust survivors. Architect Barbara Weiss, founder of the Save Victoria Tower Gardens campaign group, said the government's decision to grant planning permission was not the end of the battle against the memorial. 
Vice also questioned whether there was a potential conflict of interest in a government-backed project being decided by ministers after being called in by the government itself before Westminster City Council had had a chance to refuse it. Construction of the memorial is expected to begin next year and complete by 2025. So, Gillian, would you be able to paint a picture of Ajay's designs and how they sit within this sensitive site? Well, from what I can see, um, it sits uh, tucked into the end of the site. It's uh, a very strong design of multiple fins. I think it's 22. It's a symbolic number. I, I mean, I'm completely, my head is in a whirl over the labyrinthine uh, political, uh, the levels of, <laughs> of influence, the levels of view, the levels of push and pull here. But actually, I think it's, it's completely in the wrong place as, a, as the building or as the project is supposed to be two completely different things. One is memory and the other is to, is to alert us, to remind us and to keep something running in our heads forever. That's very, very interesting. I mean, I guess, I mean, certainly in some ways I share some of those thoughts in that park. It's an enigmatic park, but it's also quite sort of weird and windswept and almost entirely inhabited by journalists or politicians. And it's not really a place that the kind of uh, is seen as a great focus uh, for the public, so to speak. Um, is there any, any thoughts on you know, how it, this particular spot has ended up to be quite so divisive? Because I think a lot of commentators, I know some campaigners are based quite near to it, but um, a lot of other people who are really heated up at this, about this, basically never go to that park at all and never really spend any time in it. It's very strange, of course, now, given that the Palace of Westminster is a sort of embattled site with all its security devices. I mean, I was hopping over barriers and I was sort of chicaning on my feet, you know, towards it, you know, because I happened to be walking through Parliament Square. And, you know, that that's a very unpromising start. And it has to be said, I mean, this is going to be a site, if it is built on this site, it is going to be subject to the tightest and most particular security. And I don't know that anybody has really factored that in to the discussion because, you know, it's a horrible experience coming, as I say, past the Palace of Westminster, largely on security grounds. I mean, what will this bring to it? So, I mean, <laughs> this is not so much a, you know, it's not a fine detail of design. It's a kind of conceptual uh, crash point. So it's quite interesting. If we look back at the genesis of this project, um, basically it goes back to 2014 when the then Prime Minister David Cameron uh, announced the commission to establish a permanent Holocaust memorial. And it was going to be at one of three locations in London, uh, including the potential for it being at the Imperial War Museum, which isn't too far away from the, the proposed site of the, the current memorial. Um, and obviously, also the Imperial War Museum itself has a very significant and important Holocaust exhibition that's been there for the past 21 years. Um, so in the seven years since this genesis, um, the site has now moved to the very doorstep of Parliament itself. Um, was this potentially a political move? Um, and, and why is it so powerful to place it this memorial right next to uh, the Palace of Westminster. I mean, what's significant about the interpretation space that goes with this memorial is it's to, it's to be dedicated to Jewish people who came to Britain and were welcomed in Britain and created amazing lives here. Um, 
But then also uh, there is the point to be made about, you know, what role did Britain's parliament play in responding to the Holocaust during the Second World War, for example? And is there, you know, is it, so there are some who are arguing, could this be potentially rewriting history? I, I mean, I completely concur with that. And the Imperial War Museum is without doubt the place for this. And I mean, you know, they have a track record in conveying this history, this story, this shocking reality. And if there's money to be, you know, saved, then it should go into the most in-depth education drive to make sure that the next generation aren't in the position of not knowing about the Holocaust. I mean, how will walking into that little green space and seeing some golden fins and then proceeding to the box below really deal with any of that? It's a societal problem. It's not a built problem. And I may say this, I'm, I'm echoing discussions with Jewish friends. I mean, this is not... It, it doesn't divide opinion, it just hasn't really struck a chord in its current place. So the minister may have said, let's go for it. But, you know, I don't believe that it's got legs. So what's it, one of the interesting things about this story and this debate is that it comes at a time where, you know, because of the pandemic, we've seen the pressures on green spaces, especially in a city like London, but also the massive injustices that exist around access to open areas. Um, I mean, the approval of this project, which will take up a chunk of Victoria Tower Gardens, um, which, if you live in that neighbourhood, is is one of the few small green bits of uh, open free space available to you. Um, yeah, is is that possibly an, another uh, another thing to look at here? Um, in that this isn't just about the memorial; it's about a kind of creeping um, paving over or semi uh, public uh, privatisation of what had other what had for more than a century, been safeguarded for for public openness? Well, it's certainly a very odd message to put about if um, if you're saying, here's another green space which you're not going to have anymore because the security implications are such that there will be no way that you can just meander through. It, it's sort of on the list of uh, counter-arguments. I would say that it's actually quite low because... Uh, if there's one thing that the COVID months have done for us, it's to give us a sense of how lucky we are with our green spaces. It doesn't matter whether it's, you know, some tiny, you know, Phoenix Gardens behind Shaftesbury Avenue or it's my favourite, St George's Gardens or all these central London gardens which just have completely, you know, they've, they've been our sort of, uh, you know, the key to the padlock. And uh, I think... Uh, uh, I'm not sure that this particular uh, little green space has uh, quite such weight um, as that. You are listening to The Lundown, a weekly news show brought to you by Open City. We rely on support from people like you to make this show. So if you like The Lundown and want to support our work, please share the link, leave us a review on iTunes and consider becoming an Open City friend. 
The Lundown is supported by Adobe, makers of software including Photoshop, InDesign and Audition, the program we use to edit this show. Go to open-city.org.uk forward slash Adobe to sign up for a special discounted subscription to the Adobe Creative Suite for as little as £9.99 a month and Adobe will donate to OpenCity for everyone who signs up. Our second story, again featured in the AJ, takes us just across the River Thames to Lambeth Green, which is on the other side of the river from Victoria Tower Gardens. The Garden Museum, which sits next to Lambeth Bridge, has announced the six shortlisted teams in its open contest for a new landmark pavilion on the green. Mary Duggan Architects, Charles Holland Architects, Ros Barr Architects and Rising Stars Cook Fawcett Architects have all been chosen to proceed to the next phase of the contest. New solo practitioner William Guthrie and a collaboration between Bartlett graduates Adrian Yankee Sui and Shi Kui Kiku Tu complete the shortlist. The competition sought sketch proposals for a new permanent building to be used by staff and volunteers to maintain Lambeth Green, a planned new 2.14 hectare park designed by Dan Pearson Studio. This new pavilion comes four years after Dow Jones Architects completed a new extension to the museum, which occupies Lambeth's Grade 2 listed former St Mary's Church and is next door to the Grade 1 listed Lambeth Palace and Reginald Blomfield and George Topham Forest's Grade 2 listed Lambeth Bridge. The latest contest sought ideas for a new permanent pavilion which integrates architecture with landscape design and horticulture. Moving into the next phase of the competition, the six shortlisted teams will now each receive £1,500 to develop their concepts ahead of the next round of judging in September. So, Gillian, this pavilion will be situated a mere stone's throw away from the Holocaust Memorial on the opposite bank of the Thames. The contestants face many of the same challenges, getting their designs to stand alongside key pieces of Grade 1 listed historic architecture and on the edges of a UNESCO World Heritage Site. What do you think about how the six finalists have attempted to sensitively integrate their designs into this culturally significant site without damaging the wider heritage of the area? And could this contest fare better in terms of outcome than its high-profile neighbour across the river? I love the Garden Museum and I I greatly admire the work that Dow Jones have done there, both Phase 1 and Phase 2. I know some people don't like the original conversion, but it works for me. It still speaks to me of the church uh, it also speaks to me of a sort of, uh, it's not a very immediately legible uh, arrangement of space. And for that, I love it. I mean, it's it's exploratory. It opens up uh, new little corners each time I go there. I see something I haven't seen before. I love the way that they've incorporated the garden. And I'm not quite sure if they need... Um, a sort of, I mean, the word pavilion is, of course, uh, it covers a multiple, multiplicity of, of uh, outcomes. Um, and I've, I've looked through what I can see, and obviously these are a, a very much first phase uh, intimations, but I, I, I think I saw a couple which were quite, as it were, structural, which involved a tower, or no, a tower is an overstatement, but a form of entrance, a gateway, uh, and others which uh, were more to do with walling it in slightly and perhaps uh, providing whatever this shelter that's required. I'm not quite sure whether it's to put uh, buckets and spades in. I, I can't quite uh, make out what the, what the function is, and maybe that's the point. Maybe the function is to actually emerge uh, with 
uh, this discussion and I noticed that the judging team are all very much involved there I and mean, they haven't got outsiders there they're all people right in the middle of the museum so they know what they want and I presume they're going to nudge the winner towards uh, the outcome. Our third story uh, for a London architecture story is quite a, a rare thing actually this is one that's been covered in the national and international news media including the Guardian, the Evening Standard, Washington Post, Forbes and the New York Times even kicked up a storm on Twitter. It's all to do with Dutch architect MVRDV's highly criticised marble arch mound, which has been slammed by the public and critics alike. Described as a slag heap by early visitors, Westminster City Council has now offered refunds to the people who paid £4.50 to climb the mound last week, after conceding the landmark was simply not ready for its opening. The £2 million temporary installation, similar to the one the same Rotterdam-based practice proposed for the Serpentine Pavilion 17 years ago was commissioned to entice crowds back to Oxford Street as the council pledged to do more to spruce up the shopping district following the pandemic. Manchester School of Architecture senior lecturer Rob Hyde described the mound on Twitter as quote pointless while assorted skills and talents director Christopher Boyce suggested it was quote a massive waste of time and material. The mound's creators, MVRDV, have defended the project saying quote it is a vulnerable installation no doubt but we just need to give nature a bit of time. The architects also said that there was a serious message behind the mound about how important it is to add nature to cities to combat climate change. So Gillian, what's this all about? MVRDV are a world-renowned Dutch architecture practice and are responsible for some truly amazing structures around the globe, frankly. Um, perhaps you could paint a picture of what happened here, why this installation at Marble Arch has delivered such a divisive outcome and also just reflecting on it for people like us especially at open city and on this show we often find ourselves championing architecture's way forward for cities why is this outcome so troubling so i had a little scroll yesterday and i found julia payton jones who was then uh heading up the uh, program of the pavilions at serpentine or head of Ser of the serpentine saying this was a, this was after um, she was looking back on it from from some years later. This was a valiant failure, she said. Is that the first the first line of 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 what she said, uh, in a, which is a little Vimeo clip you can anyone can watch. I mean, what were Westminster councillors or Westminster whoever this was? What were they thinking? Do they not have the ability to do a little little bit of checking, a little bit of research, to choose something which was regarded as Yes, so, you know, kind of parked on one side, a huge amount of money went into it uh, to develop it as far as it did at Serpentine, and they realised they couldn't do it. It was, in fact, going to wrap the entire Serpentine gallery. So, well, they come to Marble Arch, they're going to wrap the arch. Oh, surprise, surprise, it doesn't work. So then you've got this lump. And the lump, um, the other thing I did was looked at some of the... Um, because it's going to give you a view, isn't it? That's what it's about. So you go up uh, to the top. What do you get? You got the Edgware Road. Now, I love the Edgware Road. I love, you know, delving around in those shops. I don't want to look down it from the top of a mole heap. As for the, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of... It's getting ridiculous, you know, this notion of we've got to get green into the city. Where in heaven's name are they? at Marble Arch, on the edge of the most sumptuous 
Park, which goes from Hyde Park to Kensington Gardens. I haven't measured it, but we're talking an immense... You could do a very long, good walk by walking around the edges of that space. What do they need to have a peeling green lump for? I, I, I'm, I can only... I just feel terribly cynical. I mean, I'm sure... Uh, you know, I realise that my screensaver on my mobile, and this is, you know, a vote for them, the architects, is that wonderful glass-fronted shop in Amsterdam, which I fell upon when I was last there. I love it. I mean, and they're, the things they've done are all good fun and I mean, not all good fun, but they're they're full of ideas and whatever. So, so Westminster come to them and say, you know, have you have you got some ideas for a pavilion? So, you know, they've got this enormous plan chest and they go to the bottom drawer and they think, oh, here's one we did earlier, you know, like cookery shows, except it was a heroic failure. Well, the council says the mound's purpose is to draw in crowds and it doesn't, doesn't necessarily seem to, to be doing that. Um, you know, obviously the idea was to those crowds would be potential customers to the nearby shops. Um, when you look at Westminster as a borough, though, it is like a hugely divided place. You've got some of London's richest neighbourhoods as well as its poorest quite near to each other. And um, in that context, is this really a sensible way to invest £2 million, especially as we're just slowly emerging from a pandemic? Um, you know, it's a thing like this that you have to pay to go up, who does this serve? Is it about shopping visitors with spare cash or you know how does this how does this interact with struggling locals who've got the very real reality of balancing their rent food and heating bills and often failing to do so well the other thing is that um i walked around the edge of manchester square the other day and i thought oh i wouldn't half give yeah i give a lot to go in there you know and it's got very uh fierce notices about you know have to have a you know it's a keypad and the passcodes and things, completely empty, of course, nobody in there, beautifully tended. Um, you know, there, there are squares one block in from Oxford Street. There are, there are green spaces and squares all over the place, but I'm afraid to say almost all of them are private. And it seems to me that Westminster would do much better to um, have, have a strategy for at least summertime openings, so, something something substantial in the terms of, of giving back. And it occurs to me that perhaps the green lump is, to some extent, a sort of slightly peevish uh, response to the fact they were going to pedestrianise Oxford Street, weren't they? And that was rebuffed. And I don't think that a pedestrian uh, main thoroughfare with whatever the percentage of closed shops will be when when it all shakes out in the autumn. I don't think it's going to be somewhere you awfully want to walk. So I think they should be thinking much, much harder about what's ahead. And, you know, this this is like a sort of public relations... Uh, you know, it's food poisoning, really, isn't it? I mean, they've, they've, they've given themselves norovirus. And while we're on this topic of, of public realm improvements, I mean, if you look at the, the wider city of Westminster, um, there are some, some pretty impressive plans underway. For example, there's the pedestrianisation of Strand Aldwych. Um, and all, not so long ago, uh, Trafalgar Square was partially pedestrianised, and that's been like unequivocally a great uh, success. So, I mean, it'd be quite interesting to hear your thoughts as an architectural historian, like what you could tell us about London's public realm and the history of how architects have changed it. Where are those really shining success stories? And then also, just thinking of that mound, 
in those years, was there ever any similarly weird kind of successful, uh, unsuccessful or successful pop-up ventures uh, that we could use to compare to this one? I mean, I have to say on the, on the, on the substantial changes for the better, I mean, even the sort of loose fit, uh, what they've done to the Strand already, I, I've always found that very successful, you know, the fact that you can, you can you know, cross the road with... I mean, I know that if you're partially sighted and there are there are always constituencies who aren't well served in any any of these kind of changes, but I like that. I'm completely delighted that um, the church will be... St Mary Le Strand will be finally released from... You know, it's like St Mary Le Beau. You know, they're traffic islands. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the injustice, really, of these... 18th century buildings awash with diesel fumes and the rest uh, is 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 really considerable. I, I mean, we got back, we got Somerset House back. You know, the cars, car parking was taken away from there. Um, I like Exhibition Road. I think you know. I think we all jog along uh, that scheme. It's it's not, it's not immediately super clear what's going on, but it works. I like it. You know, I think we've learned. And, and, of course, where do we learn a lot of this from? Holland, the country of really, really good public realm. So, you know, I, I, feel, I feel it's very sad that this particular blot that we've been talking about should come from that incredibly enlightened culture where their landscape architects and their architects work so well together so obviously we're a, we're a uh, news review, media review show. So I thought it's quite interesting just now to reflect on the media response uh, to the Marble Arch Mall because it's been covered around the world. It's got tons of column inches. Um, but is this potentially a bit disproportionate? I mean, yes, it is two million pounds of public money. But in the same week, uh, the Times has reported that Parliament has written off 70 million pounds, uh, which it spent on working up plans for a temporary debating chamber that was due to house members while the main building was being refurbished. It's not going ahead now. Um, no one seems to be talking about that. Everyone's just piling on to the Marble Arch Mound. The, the fact that the world's press is picking it up is a sort of... It's like a metaphor, really, for um, you know the present government, which is so frequently doing such. You know their foolishness is so stratospheric that foolishness on this microscopic level is easier to illustrate, but is nevertheless, you know, it's a figurative illustration of where we are, and it doesn't really matter who designed it, and in you know, the fact it was drier at some point and wetter at another so it wasn't sort of enormously well fitted it's just a it's just a fiasco of with not too many injured a final story this week appeared in the guardian in an article written by its architecture critic ollie wainwright previous guest on this show it's all to do with the proposed madison square gardens stadium sphere which may soon be gracing stratford's skyline a planning application uh, for a vast glowing orb as wide as the London Eye and nearly as tall as Big Ben, lit by 36 million LED lights, has been submitted and is scheduled to be voted on by the London Legacy Development Corporation, the LLDC, planning committee next month. Masterminded by New York's Madison Square Garden Company and designed by the architects Populous, the proposed 21,500 capacity MSG sphere will illuminate its entire surface with 20 
24-hour, near 360-degree advertising. The 1.9-hectare triangular site, which was bought by MSG for £60 million in 2017, sits between railway lines next to the Westfield Shopping Centre and close to the former Olympic Stadium, which was also designed by Populous. Local residents, councils, as well as neighbours the O2 Arena and West Ham Football Club have all objected to the proposed plans. Historic England has also warned that nearby conservation areas would be damaged by the stadium's size and, quote, intrusive disturbance on their settings. LLDC will decide on the planning proposal next month. Um, Gillian, this is a true test for London's democratic planning process. Newham Council and neighbouring Hackney are both solidly against the proposal, as are local residents and some rival venues. Do you think this majority unelected members of the LLDC board will listen to local concerns? And if it does win approval, what does this say about the state of planning in 21st century Britain? My answer is a question, which is how long does the LLDC have? It was post-2012. Uh, I mean, does are they coming to the end of a ten-year uh, period? Anyway, what I'm saying is this: this is just um, an authority that doesn't have longevity uh, in its makeup, and I don't know who its board members are. I have, I mean, I remember a long time ago hearing what they hoped to do, but this one has come from the blue yonder. Although obviously we could have worked it out if we'd seen who bought that piece of land. Um, I'm amused to see an identical one is actually rising in uh, Las Vegas. I mean, is Stratford the new Las Vegas? I mean, what, you know, what, in which case, why is the V&A East going down there? Why is the Bartlett there? What's, I mean, I find it very hard to, to grapple with this very seriously. I do not for one instant imagine that this could go and I'm prepared to put money on it. Nice. <laughs> I mean, and I've just checked. LLDC is um is planned to wind up in twenty thirty. So that's eighteen years um after the games. But but just thinking, just sort of zooming out a bit from the Olympic Park and saying, thinking, looking at the wider story of development and renewal within London's East End. Is this the sort of architecture that we would have expected to see in a neighbourhood like, say, Stratford, for example, a few decades ago before the Olympics? And does it represent the sort of sustainable development that people living in what were called the so-called host boroughs? Those are the, the ones surrounding the Olympic Park, which together face some of the, like, the highest levels of poverty and disadvantage in the country. Is this the sort of thing that they might benefit from? I've got, got myself, I can't quite remember why, very interested in what they were going to do in the different the different sort of gradations of the Olympic Park um, and I go back fairly often and um, I've had several over the years students looking at it from different aspects and I feel have been feeling very proud really of what was achieved and how in, in a way you know there was a cordon sanitaire between what what the park brought to the area uh, and has, uh, you know, has left there intact. Um, and then all the time there is this feeling of, of sort of something gnawing away, as if it was too good for them or too good for us, you know, that that, that, that it, it's sort of, um, I, I don't know, it's it's like a sort of an envy of um, of that space. And while some of the early student housing was fine and some of the housing blocks were carefully thought through I just you know I sense a terrific amount of debasing going on and a terrific distancing of the place from from a real uh, community and again 
I mean, what are we seeing? We're seeing things sold off plan, far away, you know. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, lost its... It, it shows signs of losing its moorings. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't underplay what they've hit amidships, the COVID crisis, etc., etc. Um, but, I mean, do we... I mean, bread and circuses, come on. Don't want that. I hear you on that. And certainly um, if I think of the Olympic Park, I think those amazing connections going between areas which had otherwise been cut off from each other, you know, cut throughs which had been practically no-go zones for young people growing up in those areas. Um, that That is a real spirit of what it's achieved. The fact that you can go from uh, Hackney Wick to Leytonstone in kind of style and elegance all on one level without going up a flight of stairs. And a giant sphere on a triangular railway corner doesn't really speak of that. <laughs> you know, it does, it's not really part of that. But um, look, regular listeners to the show will know that we love to talk about uh, the climate crisis and the impact of the construction industry on the environment. We want to hold the industry to account. We talk about the scale of embodied carbon, the cost of demolition. Um, surely, uh, you know, we all know now that we need to be building structures that are adaptable uh, when we think about all of this stuff and can be uh, altered to fit evolving uh, needs. So is this the kind of architecture, this sphere, um, that we really should be continuing to erect across the city? Um, you know, can you see an energy and capitally intensive structure like this surviving the many changes we likely to face in the coming decades, especially, like as you hinted at, you know, the rise of outdoor entertainment, uh, people doing more things at home as well in the wake of the pandemic? Well, I mean, I, I'm afraid this is where the, the inner cynic comes out in me. I mean, it's, it's just an advertising hoarding. That's what it is. I mean, the 21,500 people who are going to sit inside, I mean, it, it doesn't tell us what they're going to be doing or why they would be, want to be there. Why don't they just, you know, why don't they just say it's going to be a very sophisticated set of thrilling advertising? I, I don't feel, I don't feel terribly generous towards it, put it that way. Gillian, it's been a great pleasure to have you on The Lundown this week. I hope you can join us again soon. Uh, you, you, you mentioned your book and um, perhaps you could uh, tell listeners a little bit more about it uh, and also where listeners can, can stay up to date on the things you're doing, your socials, where you publish your articles and so on. Well, uh, the book went into paperback this April. I celebrate Essex really um, as a place that people... I think what's very interesting is people on the whole, don't really get Essex until they move a bit away. And my ideal audience, I always say to people, is the Essex diaspora. Gillian Darley, author of Excellent Essex in Praise of England's Most Misunderstood County, thank you very much for coming on the show. My pleasure. You've been listening to The Lundown, a show from Open City rounding up the big stories in architecture and the built environment each week in London. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues and many more too. You can find the show on Twitter or Instagram at at OpenCityLondon or by using the hashtag Lundown, L-N-D-D-W-N. Open City receives no public funding, so if you want to support our work, please go to open-city.org.uk slash support and sign up as an Open City friend. Open City is dedicated to making London a more open, accessible and equitable city.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.